Good morning, everybody. I'm going to begin our new series, which is called No Other Gods. Now, what is this series all about? Well, when you and I and everybody else in our society looks around, what we see is craziness, chaos. And the question we all have is, what's going on? What is causing all of this? Where are things headed? And how do I protect myself and my family and my church, and not just protect, but thrive in a crooked and depraved generation? There are many prophets, there are many priests out there today making a lot of money telling us what the problem is, making predictions, giving us their diagnosis, telling us what the cures are, whether it's economics or politics or psychology. It's any topic you can find people who are being prophets and priests. But the question we have to ask ourselves as Christians is, what does God say? Well, God says the problem is idolatry. The cure is repentance and faith in Christ. And the prediction is that apart from that, there is no hope for us or our nation. But in repentance and faith, there is hope, salvation, redemption, forgiveness, God's love and grace, and healing. So the church has to see this, what the problem really is, what the cure really is, so that we can go first, so that we can show the world how. So in this series, we're going to be looking at several things. First, we're going to be looking at the other gods we're being tempted to worship. That's week two. And then we're going to be looking at how false prophets and priests teach us to bow down and serve these gods, and how the corrupt kings of our day, some of them, well, they'll punish us if we refuse. That's going to be week three. In week four, we're going to be studying the new orthodoxy, the new laws, the new morality. And we're going to see how those contrast with the wisdom of God's law and God's morality. In week five, we're going to be looking at the family and how central that is to worshiping God rightly. And then in week six, we're going to wrap up the series by describing what we can do to move forward and strengthen and expand the Christian counterculture that we're creating here in Church in the Valley and that we want to grow in our area. So let's start with the question, how does the Lord want us to fight? If there's a great war going on, if there's a great shaking going on in our society, how as Christians are we to fight and expand the kingdom of God? He tells us. It's not with guns and bullets. It's not with the weapons the world uses. It's not with manipulation and threats. No, God says the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Ah, our goal, our offense, the way we fight is by demolishing strongholds. What's that? He says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's how we fight. That is our aim in this series, to demolish the arguments and the pretenses that get us to worship other gods, to take captive thoughts and to learn to think like Christians so that we can worship God in every area of life, not just in the narrow boxes that devotees of other gods tell us that we have to stay inside, but in every area of life, and then we can enjoy his blessing. God's word will be, as always, our standard. It will be the straight line against which we measure everything in this series. Today, I'd like to start by setting the stage and asking you to imagine a society, just imagine, if you will, a society where God's people are being pressured to worship false gods or face cancellation, stigmatization, scapegoating, and violence. Imagine a world in which God's commands to men are seen as a threat to those in power, so they are outlawed. Can you imagine with me a world, a society where the government claims authority to decide when, where, and how you can worship God? Can you imagine a society like that? 
Can you imagine a society where the state sanctions the murders of babies and promotes policies that destroy families? In a society where the state controls property, labor, controls who can work, when they can work, and for how long they can work. A place where everyone is afraid to speak the truth, where men are afraid to stand up, and where people will lie and hide just to survive, even midwives delivering babies. Now, if you're asking what society is that, I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about Israel, the nation of Israel, 400 years after living in Egyptian slavery. You see, in Israel, Israel was in Egypt and they were slaves to idolaters. And Pharaoh and his gods were doing all those things I just listed to God's people in Egypt. How would God save them? How would he deliver them from the slavery of other gods? Well, 40 years later, the one true God did just that. The Lord judged Egypt. He judged their gods. He judged their people. He judged their king, who they were worshiping, and and he delivered Israel. And he led Israel to Sinai, to Mount Sinai. And why did God do that? Why did he save his people? He says to teach his people to worship him rightly. He didn't save his people because he wanted them to go off and do whatever they wanted. That's not what he said to Pharaoh. The Lord said, go to Pharaoh. He said this to Moses. Say to to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. So he wanted mankind to worship him, to bear his image rightly. And so at Sinai, he would show his people how to do that. He wanted his people to come and learn how to worship him in every area of life so they could bear his image in every area of life. And God is starting over with the nation of Israel. And he tells Pharaoh, let my people go, not so they can go do whatever they want, but so they can come and learn to worship me. And that is where we are today. So how do we rightly worship God? This is the big question at the heart of this message series. How do we rightly worship God? And to learn that, we look at the Ten Commandments. We look at what the law was that God gave his people at the foot of that mountain. You see, God didn't save them because they were good. God saved them because he loved them. He delivered them out of Egypt. And now that they were his people, now that he had saved them by their faith, because they believed him and followed him out of Egypt, and they believed him and they walked through the Red Sea, and they believed him and they put the blood of the lamb over the door so that the angel of death would pass over the firstborn. Because of their faith, they were saved. But now that they were saved, they would learn to worship God, the only God, the one true God, his way. And that's what the Ten Commandments teach us and others to do. The Ten Commandments teach us to have no other gods before the Lord. So let's read through the Ten Commandments and let's see what they tell us about God, what they tell us about us, and what they tell us about right worship. First, the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What the Lord is saying here is when you make the Lord your God, you're free. He brings you out of slavery. But when you turn from the Lord and serve other gods, he will put you back in. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Man is a worshiper. This is a binary choice. Either mankind will worship the one true God or they will worship other gods. There is no third option. There is no neutrality. It's this God or that God, but you will worship one. The second command, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, that's in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. Why can't I make an image of God? Because you are God's image bearer. You bear God's image on earth as a human being. You are made in his likeness. And so you must know who he is if you're to know who you are. He is the original. We are the copy. 
And so the more we know him, the more that we can reflect him and worship him rightly. And then he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them in the second command. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. God is saying that if you obey my commands, you love me. But if you worship, bow down and serve any other God, you hate me. He says it right here. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's not whether but which. It's not whether you will bow down and worship, but which God it will be. If you do not worship the Lord, this is hatred towards him. He does not give you a third option. I love him. I hate him. I'm not sure. That is not presented to you by God because man is a worshiping creature. But if you bow down and serve him, his love and blessing will go out to a thousand generations. So how do we bow down and serve him? That is the obvious question that comes out of our hearts when we take seriously the second commandment. How do I love and serve you? How do I bow down and serve you? And the answer is, in every area of life that God claims authority over, you obey his commands. This is how you worship him, by obeying his commands in every area of life that God claims authority over. And now the rest of the commandments show you the vast and sweeping claim to authority over every area of life that God is taking and how every area of life is to be an act of worship to God, not just Sundays, not just in your heart. So now we go to the fourth command. Is that right? No, the third command. You shall not... Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord does not lie about who he is, so we mustn't say false things about him either. That's a violation of the third commandment. The Lord does no evil, so we mustn't commit evil in his name. This is a violation of the third commandment. What is evil? Whatever the Lord says it is. God takes authority over what is good and evil. He takes authority over religious worship, art, music, communication. This whole range of life, the Lord takes authority. And we honor him and worship him by obeying the third commandment. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, your God. And on it you shall do no work. You or your sons or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you at the gates. For in six days, the Lord made heavens and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And the Lord rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So what is God teaching us? He's teaching us who he is. He worked and then rested. And since God rested, you as his image bearer must rest too. Well, that means that God is taking authority over the calendar, my watch, holidays, He defines what a holy day is, what a holy time is. He's the Lord over the calendar. To worship him, you must worship with his people one day out of seven. Because this commandment to Sabbath is a holy convocation, a holy convention, a holy congregation, a holy gathering of God's people once a week. You see this later on in Exodus, and then again it's reiterated in Deuteronomy. Refusal. To worship the Lord each week collectively with the people of God 
is not bowing down and serving him. And inevitably, it means you're putting another God before him. It could be your own will. I want to go on vacation. I want to sleep in. I have other plans I'd like to do. Well, that means that your will and your authority over your schedule trumps his, which means you're not bowing and serving him in this area. You see, God takes authority over all of that area. Then you go on to the fifth commandment. It says, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. What is God taking authority over here? God's authority extends over marriage and family and children. He defines these terms. And to worship God means to obey him in marriage and family. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You worship him by protecting innocent life. He defines innocent and guilty. And killing, not murder, is valid. But murder is the unjustified killing of innocent life. So how do you know when it's justified? When it's according to the laws and standards of justice that God gives in his word. And that means God has authority over life and death, justice and crime, punishment. These are all big areas of life. And we are to worship God and not bow to any other gods in these areas too. So God takes authority over these things. The seventh command. You shall not commit adultery. Why not? Because God is faithful. And as his image bearers, we must be faithful. God is pure and unmixed, and therefore we cannot adulterate or mix our marriages with another person. God takes authority over marriage and sexuality. We worship God by obeying his commands in the area of sex. When man wants to say that sexual morality is something that they get to make up and that God's word should have no say over their sexual morality What they're saying is that they don't have to obey the seventh command. They can obey their own desires. And that is to have another God before the Lord. You see, the Lord doesn't give us that option. If we're going to love him, that means we obey his commands. That means we bow to and serve him. And in the area of sexuality, we do not commit adultery. And it goes on. Jesus extends this to even look With lust at a girl, look to lust at a woman or a man, is to commit adultery in your heart. So God's rule extends to this aspect of life. And then he says in the eighth command, you shall not steal. God's not a thief, so we must not steal. We worship God by respecting property rights and contracts. God takes authority over your property, your labor, your animals, your business, your labor laws, and your economy. When you combine the Sabbath command and you combine the Eighth command, you see God sweeping authority over all economic life. There is no wall of separation between God and economics. There is no wall of separation between morality and economics. We worship God in economics. And if we don't worship God by obeying his laws and submitting to his authority in economics, we're worshiping another God. Because there's only two options. We bow and serve the one true God, or we bow and serve to other gods. And then in the ninth command, it says, God is not a liar. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, because God is not a liar. So we bear his image by speaking the truth. Since God is not a liar, and he speaks the truth, and he commands us not to bear false witness, that means that God has authority over words. He has authority over truth. God has authority over the dictionary. God has authority over the encyclopedia. He defines what's true and false, good and evil, just and unjust. He defines male and female, normal and strange. And when we use language and we believe facts that contradict God's word, we are in our minds bowing 
and serving and showing reverence to other gods, other sources of authority. So, if I worship the one true God, and someone commands me to use their pronouns incorrectly, I say, I can't use your pronouns the way you want me to. Because I worship God, and I can't bear false witness. You are a man, or you are a woman, and to call you something else would be to make you lord over the dictionary. And to bow down and serve you. But I can't do that. In the Tenth Commandment, it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, or you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or your male's uh, neighbor's uh, male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else is in your neighbor's his house his car his tesla his bank account his beauty his abilities his gifts you don't covet you don't envy because god is a creator he created you the way you are and he is a provider and so as you bear his image you should show gratitude and accept your creaturely station that he gives you to envy what he gives another is to have another God before him. I can't support your feminism. Why not? Because you envy men. I'm sorry, but I can't support your critical race theory, which tells me that I should hate this person and take from this person based on immutable characteristics like race. Why not? Because you are coveting what God has given them, and you're using race to justify it. I'm sorry, but I can't support your redistribution economic policies. Because you are coveting other people's property. And God says, do not steal and do not covet. And you're using the state to get it. This is idolatry. I can't worship your gods. I have to worship the Lord. He commands me not to steal. He commands me not to covet. He commands me to work and eat from what I make. So you see, all of life now is covered. God is saying that all of life is an act of worship. And that means our choice is binary. And boy, do we hate binaries today. Mankind's choice is binary because man is homo adoran, the worshiping man. You've heard of homo sapien, the thinking man, right? But man is actually homo adoran first. He's a worshiping creature. The Lord told his people that they were to have no other gods before him in the Ten Commandments. And implicit in that command is the binary choice. They could worship the one true God or they could worship another God, but they would worship someone. This is true because man is Homo Adoran, the worshiping man. His choice is which God he will bow to and serve. Today, like then, we live in a world full of rival gods. And the disciples of these gods have seized control of the culture and the laws in America. They've seized control of many churches. Their goal, whether they admit it or not, was to turn the people, Christians included, to worship other gods. That's what culture is for, by the way. Culture is for teaching people how to worship God rightly. That's why God gave it and created it. And law is for punishing those who don't. Now, all cultures, all cultures have a cultus. That word is not used much, but it's actually where culture comes from. A cultus is the object or person that you worship. And all cultures have a cultus, the highest object of worship. Culture actually means cultivate, to grow, to teach, to disciple, to shape. And so cultures teach us how to worship the cultus in every area of life. There's an image on the screen of a triangle. Imagine society is like a pyramid. At the very top is the cultus, the object of worship. If Christ is the cultus of the society, 
then everything in the culture is done in a way that both honors Christ and is done in a way that shapes the person to love and worship Christ. Culture, whether it's art or music or science or family or sports or technology, everything in a culture is telling us what is most valuable in this life. It's shaping us and teaching us how we are to live in every area of life. Culture cultivates in us love for the cultus. And at the bottom of the pyramid, you see the law. The law comes along and it solidifies and hardens and requires and protects this culture. So, I have a poem for you. Cultures cultivate worship of the cultus. Laws enforce the official way. Cultures teach us how to worship. Laws punish those who disobey. So you see, there's always going to be a God of the system. Now in a society where there's one cultus, whether it's Allah or the state or the Lord Jesus, you pick it. When there's one cultus, you have a unified culture that is very strong and a very orderly, stable society. At one time in, China, in Japan, they worshipped the emperor. He was their cultus. And everything that they did in society showed deference to, honor to, and was in harmony with the will of the emperor. If you have one cultus in a society, you can have a strong, unified society. But if you have multiple cultus, multiple gods, multiple objects of worship, that's when you have culture wars. Why do we have wars in the culture today? Because we have many gods fighting each other. And they're trying to get the law on their side to force you to worship their gods too. Now in America, we used to have one cultus. America was founded as a Christian nation. We honored the Lord Jesus Christ in both our culture and our laws. This is how we got things like one nation under God in our Pledge of Allegiance. Things like in God we trust on our money. Things like the Ten Commandments in our courthouses and our schools. All of our public officials swearing on a Bible to fulfill the oath of office in the Constitution. Our standards of justice in America... Our standards of morality, although we fell short of these standards many times, nevertheless, the American standards were standards from God's word. American culture for 150 years in marriage and family, in education, in art and science and law and morality, American culture for 150 years harmonized with God's law and honored Christ as the cultus. Most people attended churches, and those who did not attend church were still shaped by the Christian culture. Because remember, cultures cultivate worshipers. Whether or not Benjamin Franklin really worshipped Jesus as the one true God, he was taught and shaped to live in his lifestyle, his morality, his outlook, his sense of justice. All of that was very similar to the Christians around him. Because he was cultivated in a culture that was dedicated, dedicated to the cultus, which was Jesus. You see how these words work? Now, what was the result of America that worshipped the Lord? Well, who can deny the incomparable blessings 
that God has poured out on America over the last 200 years. I could spend a week telling you all the ways in which America has been uniquely blessed in history. In fact, President Adams said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, that it was wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Why? Because when the government is small, that means the people are big. When the government is limited, that means the people are unlimited. But if the people are unlimited, who's restraining them? Who's controlling them? Who's keeping them on the righteous path? And the answer is, a moral and Christianly religious people are restrained by the Holy Spirit. They live their lives according to God's word. They're growing in holiness and righteousness. His laws restrain them. And therefore, the government can be limited. This is why we had such a limited government in the beginning, and yet such a strong, coherent society where people were law-abiding citizens. The law didn't have to be imposed from the outside because God had written it on the inside. That's what John Adams is saying here. America was founded as a Christian nation. But today we've backslidden into apostasy. We've forsaken Christ for other gods. And since the end of World War II, the culture-making institutions in America have become increasingly anti-Christian, while at the same time claiming to be tolerant and secular and neutral. And this is a lie, because there is no such thing as neutrality, as we have seen. When Christ was the cultus, the culture was Christian. So how did idolaters seize power? How did the culture shift from pro-Christian to anti-Christian? Well, by fooling Christians into giving up their cultural influence and their political authority. The prophets of other gods condemned American culture for being intolerant and bigoted and homophobic, and they said that everything other than Sunday morning worship should be completely religiously neutral. Property and economics and justice and law and education and science, they should all be morally neutral. And we believe them. So all through the 1920s and 30s and 40s, these folks seized control of the commanding heights of American culture. First at the universities and the colleges and then the schools. And this gave them the power to disciple the coming generations and slowly turn them after other gods. This was the express plan. You may be thinking, this is very conspiratorial. This was their express plan. For example, men like Gramsci who led this revolution. He said openly, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order that we're going to build by smashing the old culture, in the new order that we're going to build with the new cultus, which will create a new culture and a new set of laws, in the new order, socialism will triumph first by capturing the culture via infiltration of the schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. What he's saying is, is if we take control of the institutions of culture that shape and cultivate worshipers in the next generation, we can turn their worship towards a new God. And then the laws will follow. Now, why would they do this? Why would they do this? Because these men and women wanted to worship their lusts. They wanted to worship their lusts and do what they wanted without any social, economic, or political consequences. They said this openly. 
Another man from that same revolutionary generation said this. His name is Aldous Huxley. He wrote Brave New World. He was very honest about why it was they were tearing down the Christian culture. He said, I had motive for not wanting the world to have any meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had no meaning, and I was able without any difficulty to find satisfaction, satisfactory reasons for the assumption that the world had no meaning. Translation, the world has no meaning, there is no God, there is no morality, there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to do what I want to do. Everything that exists is man-made, and so if I'm strong enough and big enough and there's enough of us, we can make this world into anything we want. It's a big lump of Play-Doh, and that means I can do whatever my heart desires, because there's no meaning, there's no God, there's morality, there's no idolatry. And then he says very specifically, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. It gave me the power to be free. Hey, Mr. Huxley, what were you trying to be free from? And then he says, the liberation was from, what the liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. Could you speak a little bit more? What precisely was it you wanted to do you couldn't do when the culture was Christian? I'll tell you. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We, we, we objected to the politics and the economics because we thought it was unjust. Translation, we wanted to pursue our lusts sexually, politically, financially. We wanted to do things that we couldn't do because all these people were worshiping the Lord Jesus and their whole life was a form of worship. And this Christian morality had been worked into every part of culture. And then the laws reinforced this Christian culture and we felt so constrained. And so we came up with a plan which is we will replace the cultus with a different God and we'll seize control of the uh, culture-making institutions and slowly over time we will turn the nation towards other gods. Now, of course, these people would deny that their project had anything to do with religion. We're neutral. We're secular. Our beliefs are based on science and reason and evidence. But that's the most powerful lie because as we've seen, there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to morality or values or laws or culture. Everything we do is an act of worship. Even sin is an act of worship. Because in sinning, I'm worshiping myself. I'm doing what I want. I'm not going to do what God wants. Everything is an act of worship. The only question is, which God? And this is explicitly taught from the beginning of the Bible to the end. We've been looking at Exodus. Let's go to Romans. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven on the whole world, on every nation, against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Why? Why is God angry? Because they suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know God, but they suppress the truth. They know what's right, but they suppress the truth. They know they should worship the one true God, but they suppress the truth. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. God has made sure that they know that he exists. God has made sure that they know what is right and wrong. God has made sure that they know they should worship him. That's what God says about us. For since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, they've all been clearly seen from what's been made so that people are without excuse. When you look around at creation, you know there's a creator. When you see that there's a creator, you know that you should worship him. 
There's other reasons how we know. But God has made it certainly known. And so we're without excuse. And then God goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And then what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? They stopped worshiping the one true God, and what did they do? Then they became neutral. No, it doesn't say that. They exchanged the glory for the immortal God for what? For images to look like mortal humans and birds and animals and reptiles, beasts. Man stopped worshiping the Lord and he started worshiping himself and the beast. This is where we are today. We're in a world which is the return of the the old gods. The spiritual vacuum that was created by pushing Christ out of the highest position of cultus of our culture and by removing and deregulating and decriminalizing and changing the cultural uh, system of our society and then reforming and deleting and changing the laws of our society, what that did was that created a vacuum spiritually because all societies are created and designed to worship God. So when you remove Christ, what did you get? What we got was the old gods, man and the beast, man and the state, selfie and the state, selfie and the beast. You can see on our screen, these two gods are the great gods of our day. These are the rival gods that our people are worshiping. And we're going to take a lot of time next week to go through each of these gods and how we worship them. But to summarize, selfie says to you and to me and to all, do what you want, when you want, where you want, however you want, with whoever you want, for as long as you want. But the only sin is intolerance. The only sin is saying no. The only sin is calling something wrong. This is what the gospel of selfie preaches. You should follow your heart. You should do you. Speak your truth. You can be whatever you want to be. If you say that you're now a man, you're a man. If you say now that you're a woman, you're a woman. Why? Because your identity is something that you decide. But wait, what about God? No, no. Your will is the highest will. Your word is the highest word. You are your own highest authority. And this is what man is given over to by the Lord. The worship of selfie. And it brings chaos. Because when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, it's chaos. Imagine a football team where every player on the team ran their own play every down. What would happen? Chaos. And in America today, the chaos that you see is because we have forsaken one God, the Lord Jesus, and we chased after another God, Selfie. And now that God is in the highest place. And that God has seized control of the culture. And that culture is raising us and our kids to worship selfie. And the laws are coming and following. And that brings us to the second God, which is the beast. Again, we'll look at more of this next week. But the beast in the Bible is a persecuting civil ruler. It's an all-powerful state that it has no submission to God. And as Francis Schaeffer said, as R.J. Rushdoony said, 
As Greg Bonson said, when there is no God above the state, the state becomes God. What is the only thing powerful enough to bring order to all the chaos that's being created by selfie worshipers? What is the only thing strong enough and big enough to pay for all of the sinful living of selfie worshipers? The answer is the state. The state is the only thing big enough and strong enough to take the chaos and bring order to it. And what you find in world history is as people stop worshiping the one true God, they worship themselves, and then that is quickly followed by worship of the state, and then the state takes over everything, and then God brings down his judgment. This is the cycle that you see in civilization. And where we are today is we are worshiping the old gods, selfie and the beast. And so our choice is clear. It is Christ or chaos. The cause of the chaos we see today is our rejection of Christ. And it can only be undone by turning from our idolatries and serving Christ as Lord. Paul said, I have preached to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our message is repent. Turn to God. When you see the pride and the growing tyranny and the sexual immorality and the breakdown of marriage and family, when you see rampant crime and public filth and disorder, when you see inflation and a devalued currency, when you see the vanishing of your citizenship, the decline of your economy, open borders, when you see endless foreign wars, when you see epidemics of drugs and depression and suicide, it's confusing. What is the root? It seems all disconnected. It seems random. What's the pattern? What explains all these things that are all over my newsfeed? When Christians look at all this chaos in America, it confuses us. And so then we don't know what to call it, we don't know what's causing it, and we don't know what to do. We have a hard time seeing the root. But these are all symptoms of a deeper sickness. These are all fruit, but the root is idolatry. But unlike these false gods, our God is full of grace And he's full of mercy. And even now, even today, even after all the sin and all the ingratitude that we have shown God as a nation, if we repent and we have no other God but Christ, he has promised to forgive us and heal us. He's actually done it before in American history. As Christians, you and I cannot be naive, apathetic, asleep anymore. We cannot be manipulated and played again and again by the myth of neutrality. We have to tear that stronghold down. There's no such thing. And that means that we can't be told that we have to stop worshiping Christ in culture. But the worshipers of selfie and the worshipers of the beast, they can worship them in every area of life. We don't play that game anymore. No, as Abraham Kuyper said, there isn't one square inch of this world over which Jesus Christ doesn't say, mine. But here's the flip side. Christ looks at this world and he says, mine, but so do the other gods. So does my heart. So do the gods of our age. We live in a deeply spiritual, deeply religious age. This is not a secular nation. This is a deeply religious nation. And we are having a battle between gods. And the question is who you and I will serve.
We should say like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The next decade looks like it's going to be a battle. We must be ready to pay the price, to obey the Lord's commands, even if it means conflict with the gods of the age. We also need to be wise and make progress for the kingdom, building our own countercultures, starting with households and then churches and businesses and schools, and then, Lord willing, creating art and music so that all of our life honors Christ. Is that worth it? Won't they just come and tear it down? Won't it all just get broken down? No, because God knows how to keep his people safe in Goshen. You'll remember that when God struck Egypt and their gods with the plague of darkness, it was dark in the land. But in Goshen, where the Israelites lived, where they were faithful to God, they still had light. Which means that God can protect you, he can protect your family, he can protect our church, he can protect your community, if we are loving and serving no other God but him, while he brings judgment on others. And so we should be asking, how can I worship you more and more in every area? And so in order to do that, in order to be those kinds of people with that kind of confidence and to walk in faith, what must you do? Here are five practical things you can do starting this week. Number one, prioritize worship. Make sure you come every Sunday to worship on the Lord's Day with God's people. That is a way of worshiping the one true God and hearing his word and fellowshipping fellowshipping with his people to strengthen you. Number two, read the Bible daily so that you can learn the commands of God and how you can obey him in every area. Because he promised you, if you love him and obey his commands, he'll bless you to a thousand generations. So learn his commands by reading his word every day. Number three, I want to encourage you to sign up for the Problem with Christianity online course. If you'd like to do a deeper dive into selfie worship, I created a course for our student ministry two years ago. It's online. You go at your own pace. You watch videos. There's great resources. There's some activities for you to do. It will help you with your family and help you with your kids. And if you want more information about that course, and we'll begin that course in a couple weeks, then you can go ahead and sign up on the connection card. And then put roots down at Church in the Valley. You have to get rooted so that it's hard to get pushed around. By the culture. If you don't want to get pushed around in the culture and, and pushed into worshiping other gods, then you have to have deep roots that keep you stable. And being a part of a church gives you those roots. So participate in worship, go to groups, go to um, uh, a join a team, and then have people over getting to know your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Church in the Valley. Become a member. And most importantly, we have to repent of selfie worship in our own life. We need to confess our lusts, our fears, our covetousness, and our unbelief. And as we do that, and we put selfie to death in our own lives, God makes us free, and then we can go out and help other people break free from that false worship. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your time and word. We thank you for the commands you've given us. We pray you'd apply this to our hearts and help us to see all the ways in which we can worship you every day. Lord God, protect us against idolatry. Deliver our nation. Have mercy on us and pour out your spirit. Please grant repentance to our leaders at every level of society. God, please save us and be merciful to us the way that you saved each of us individually. We pray you apply your word to our life wherever we need it today. In Jesus' name, amen.